Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and podcast for our very first show of 2020. Uh, first, a big thank you to our fishy friends from Radio Marinara for the last hour of aquatic awesomeness, and I look forward to having your company here and for the next hour here on 3 R 102.7. Well, it's been quite a start of the year, hasn't it, with some appalling bushfires ravaging the country. <laughs> Rain and hailstorms wreaking further havoc. And if that's not enough, we now have a new virus that's already on these shores. But the good news is, we're back. So settle back and keep us company for another hour here on Radiotherapy. And keeping you company here in the studio, we have our resident scientist, researcher and psychotherapist, Prudence Deer. Welcome back to the studio, Prudence. Hi, good morning, everyone. Here we are. It's lovely. lovely. February. Yeah, Beautiful month. Nice to have you back. And next to her, we have our no longer medical student, but now fully qualified and bleary-eyed from countless hours on the wards, misdiagnosis. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And um, misdiagnosis, is that still the right name for you in your new role? Look, I think um, I think I might stick with misdiagnosis, especially after I um, I made a referral to one of the infectious diseases physicians uh, a couple of days ago for uh, something that I was like, oh my goodness, I saw something on on the results page on one of the you know one of the patients I was looking after. I thought, oh my goodness, they're infected with this thing in their urine. I need to get some advice, and I called up the infectious diseases physician. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Just just wondering if I could get some advice on this patient, and he took one look at it and he said, how many hours have you you've been working now? I said, oh, I think this is this is twelve hours in. He goes, yeah, because you're looking at her results from 2018. Okay. So uh, maybe we'll stick with misdiagnosis yeah. for now. <laughs> Let us know when that changes. <laughs> and keeping the whole show on the road, the man who can manage all the knobs and buttons and intelligent comment all at the same time. Welcome to the dulcet tones of Panel Beater. Hey, Dr. Nick and everybody. Happy New Year. I reckon yeah. Misdiagnosis is a great name. Yeah. We've got yeah. malpractice in the other in one, in the extended um And that hasn't radio changed despite no. <laughs> Actually, I'm really, really excited about today because as trivia nerds will already know, it's a palindromic date. Because mm. today is 0202 2020, and it's super special because it doesn't matter whether you're in America or Australia, anywhere in the world, it's still palindromic. It doesn't matter where you put the month or the day first. Mm. Does that excite you, people? Oh, so exciting. Yeah, just, <laughs> I wish I'd known. I've just, you know, I've wasted I hours. I would have prepared. I and, that. and so then the next trivia question is when was the last universal palindromic date? Oh, judging by the excitement in your voice, Dr. Nick, I think you're about to tell us. It was the 11th of November, 1111. Oh, wow. So there you go. These are the important things that you learn on radiotherapy. Absolutely. Uh, Apart from palindromes in today's show, Prudence Deer will be helping us think about the bushfires and what the associated loss and trauma can mean to people and what we can do to help. Misdiagnosis will be giving us an update on the coronavirus. And later in the show, I'll be looking at a new paper in the Medical Journal of Australia, which says we overscreen and overtreat a number of common cancers. But first, some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Um, 
Prudence, you've got some very important news for us today. Well, it's February, yeah. and February each year is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. So if you don't know much about ovarian cancer, now's the time to kind of get across it a little bit. So, um, look, we know that this is um, a condition that affects um, roughly 1,500 women a year are diagnosed with this disease, and the outcomes are really quite poor and have been for some time. In fact, they've really not really improved. I mean, we've got much better surgery. We have special surgeons who can deal with this type of cancer. Um, chemotherapy is a kind of the, the main line of treatment after surgery. Um, but very often there's a recurrence. And in fact, I think I'm just looking at some stats right now, 70% of patients will actually have a recurrence, which means that the disease was never quite eradicated originally. So, and so, the spread. So let me ask you the controversial question. We know that ovarian cancer is a beast of a disease. It's yep. very hard to treat. We also know that early detection actually probably doesn't make too much difference to the outcome. So why are we asking women well, to be aware? I think we need to be careful how we perhaps interpret the overall statistics and things. So there is no early detection for ovarian cancer. There isn't a screening test in the form of a cervical smear. For example, you know, cervical smears do not detect ovarian cancer. Um, you know, this is a this is a tumour that starts very deep inside the, the pelvis and abdomen, and uh, is very difficult to see. You don't get any obvious lumps and bumps until it's it's till it's quite advanced. Which is why most presentations, most people, don't have any really clear symptoms, and they when they finally get diagnosed, they had no idea that uh, that, that they could even perhaps get a disease like this. So, I think it's about making sure that people are informed. What we do, I think, the data does show is that. Diagnosis of what we call an early stage disease where it hasn't spread outside the ovary has very good outcomes. You know, there's the surgical removal of the, the you know, the ovary and other associated organs that may also be impacted very often results in a remission. So to say, um, you know, early detection doesn't work. Yeah, early detection, there isn't one. It's, there's no mammography type thing. But on the other hand, you know, if women have symptoms, that's the only thing is some vague symptoms. So what are we asking women to be aware of then? So be aware of changes basically um, in their pelvis and abdomen. So um, discomfort, pain, um, bloating, um, increased need to sort of urinate and changes that have um, that are occurring that are a strange or abnormal for them. I mean, we all we all have, you know, um, upset stomachs, and um, depending on our sort of monthly cycles and hormones and things, we will get bloated or whatever. But you know, it's, is this a change from the normal? It's worth having it checked out. It's it's a really complicated one, isn't it? it because is. as you correctly described, the symptoms are so non-specific, and they could be anything in, in the gut, yeah. in the intestine, sometimes right. urinary. Yeah. But we do, I think, you know, many women do know their own bodies and I think it's time that, you know, we, we listen to them and we empower them through giving them the knowledge and understanding that this is something that they could at least have some control over. So can I ask you, Dr Nick, as a female, if I came to you as a young woman and I said, oh, look, you know, I've been having a bit more bloating than normal and, you know, maybe feeling a little bit more tired than I have recently and, you know, I just feel sort of maybe a bit more tired all the time and not quite right, what would you say to me as a young sort of 20-something woman who came in for that kind of consultation? 
I'd say it sounds like you're a newly qualified doctor. <laughs> exactly. And I think this, this sort of highlights, I mean, you know, aside from the medical thing, you know, maybe I started a job as an accountant. Who knows? It's not necessarily specific to medicine, that kind of stress. But these symptoms can be so nebulous and they can also be dismissed quite easily as sort of regular sort of yeah, symptoms of being absolutely. a woman. Absolutely. And if you look at the, you know, the incidence of, of this cancer really starts to rise after the age of 50. So then we're hitting the perimenopause, menopausal period. So a lot of a lot of women are dismissed, you know, by their doctors who say, "Oh, well, it's menopause." Yeah, it's it, it, I think the point you made, which is the single most important, and this doesn't just apply to ovarian cancer, but people should get to know their own body, and when Absolutely. it doesn't feel right, yeah. push. And as you would well know, Prudence, um, women have a history of going to doctors with these vague symptoms and being brushed off. Absolutely. So it's yeah, important that it, and I say, you have it doesn't, to take a stand. Yeah, and it doesn't just apply to to this. This is uh, any symptom where you think no, that just isn't me needs to be thought about in more detail. So if you need yeah. some more information, go to Ovarian Cancer Australia. They're based here in Melbourne. They can provide you with heaps of information. Find them on the web. Ovarian All right, Ovarian Cancer, Cancer Awareness Month. A, a, a little snippet, which because this is good news. Oh, we need some good news on a Sunday morning, don't we? Um, there was a lovely pub, a paper published in a journal called Neurology. Some American researchers who looked at a stack of older people and their intake of flavonols, these antioxidants that we get so excited about. But I was excited about it because I'm a big tea drinker. And they they yeah. showed that the group of older people who drink the most tea, at least three cups a day, reduce their Alzheimer's risk by nearly 50%. I'm so glad because I have two cups of tea before I even get out of bed. Yes. <laughs> so that was great. It's not, of course, it's not just tea. I mean, these, these antioxidant flavonols are in all sorts of healthy foods and plants and stuff, which I also do partake of. And curiously... We come back to our old friend red wine because there was <laughs> there was a benefit in moderate red wine intake. <laughs> but not forgetting the other impacts of alcohol, which I've covered before, where it doesn't necessarily balance out. Yes, it's so important this one, isn't it? Because this red wine thing goes oh. round and round in circles. We just we, love red wine. That's yeah, the problem. There, but we also know that too much red wine is an Alzheimer's risk. So I'm not suggesting that the three cups of tea a day should be mirrored by the three glasses of wine. But there we are. It's nice to know that our cup of tea and a piece of fresh fruit may be keeping us relatively free from uh, an Alzheimer's risk. Um, We'll be talking to Prudence Deer in a minute about the bushfires and the aftermath just after these. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And now Prudence, um, we've been going through these hideous bushfires, I mean just the most extraordinary destructive stuff happening out in rural Victoria, New South Wales and other parts of Australia. Huge massive impact on people. Tell us a bit about your views on this. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's been ins- inescapable for the last couple of months, although it's gone a little bit quiet, hasn't it, here in Melbourne at the moment, this weekend, I think. Um, but there has been such a sort of saturation coverage of the fires across Victoria and in particular in New South Wales as well. And I don't think any of us could not have been watching or listening or reading reports about the sort of, you know, the impacts on the front lines of, of those fires. And um, I don't know about you, but I've certainly seen what I can only describe as har- har- harrowing in terrifying uh, videos of these sort of mm. firestorms running through through bushland at high speed you know destroying forests and and pastures and you know we've seen those aftermath pictures with the the blackened trees and 
dead animals. Um, I think, you know, we've seen the pictures of refugees effectively trying to get off, <laughs> off you know, onto boats to escape um, and, you know, to try and find ways to get to safety. And I think it's not difficult, is it? It's easy, actually, to, to imagine what the fear and the terror um, and the intense sense of loss that many of these people are experiencing. Look, and I think it's kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the consequences of these events are, go way beyond the actual physical location. And, uh, you know, I think for those of us in Melbourne particularly like we you know we've we've had days of you know smoke filled air with harmful air quality and many people with respiratory problems have been you know struggling to get through the day or even you know whether to go out and do things I was talking to a, um, a doctor who himself was caught in a house fire, so nothing to do with bushfires, but a house fire a few years ago. And he said that the smell of the bushfire smoke triggered really traumatic memories. I'm not surprised. And uh, apparently, yeah. tell me if this is right, Prudence, you're the psychotherapist here, but smell is one of the most potent triggers of memory and PTSD risk. I think many people find that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah whatever it is, whether it's the, the smell of you know smoke, the smell of perfume or anything like that, you know, the smell of alcohol can can trigger yeah I mean it's got a direct connection straight through to your brain really hasn't it so um, anyway I mean I guess you know that um, what I was going to sort of say for me this is, so there's a lot, massive amount of loss that these people are experiencing but there is also an element that we are witnessing this so even though for many of us we're not directly involved we may have family obviously who've been involved um, but we're kind of watching this almost in a kind of from a detached sort of place through our social media and you know through our web pages and on the news um, and you know it's it's really sort of like there, there is this additional trauma that kind of flows from that, I think. And I've certainly been seeing both at work and in terms of my clients as well, how people are being impacted by this, that, that it's kind of creating um, almost like a bit of a sense of hopelessness helplessness um and is and this amongst people who weren't actively involved themselves people who weren't actively involved i think you know those of us who are witnessing what's happening um you know witnessing the, the devastation witnessing the loss of life witnessing the destruction of our environments and actually i think a, a frustration as well around some perhaps the political responses to this the perhaps the elements of denial of climate change and seeing actually young people kind of rise up and, and attempting to really flag something going on and this is something I think that's really actually affecting our kids in particular that you know they've uh, they've got a future they're, they're looking to that and they're really wondering now actually questioning what their future is going to look like because it's it's seemingly changing so anger frustration withdrawal Anxiety, depression. I mean, I could just, we could keep going on this list of mental health conditions. It, it um, sounds a bit like the list that's always typically associated with bereavement. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I, I'm, you know, bereavement, loss, this is sort of a grief reaction. And you can, you, can, you can have a grief reaction to sort of, yeah, losing your future or losing what you think is the, the way the world is for you right now. Um, and, you know, we are, I think most people are being affected by this. So one of the things I'm sort of flagging is, you know, if people around you, maybe your family are a little bit withdrawn or have gone quiet or the kids are sad or they're becoming rebellious or they're becoming angry, 
you know, this may well be um, a grief response rather than, and, and or actually some form of vicarious trauma, some being traumatised by actually witnessing the traumatic experiences of others is really quite affecting. Well, one of the things I read, a GP who worked in Malakuta in the, what was a sort of temporary evacuation centre, uh, said they realised that the TVs were on 24 hours a day and showing nothing but appalling images of the yeah. bushfires and one of the most therapeutic things they did for people was turn the televisions off. Yeah, well I think you do need to escape from this and actually I mean I, that's what I've been doing, I've just sort of stopped reading a lot of, I skip over things in my social media feed and filter things out because I think you do reach a point of saturation and when you get to that point you stop feeling you know, you kind of shut down and that, I don't think that's particularly healthy either but that's a, that's a coping mechanism but I think it is, you know, be aware of how you're feeling and reacting. Be aware of those around you. So, I mean, the sort of common sort of things are, as I said, you know, like where people start perhaps, you know, their reactions, their emotional responses aren't quite what you expect from them. Um, where people perhaps experience a sense of, you know, a loss of, loss of hope, loss of interest in the future. You know, things are terrible. Um, perhaps being um, a bit more nervous or jumpy, not sleeping well, not eating well. Um, more sort of, you know, panic attack type things, anxiety, severe anxiety, all sorts of things. And and one of them is a sense of guilt, you know, that I'm, I'm in the city or whatever. I'm not actually directly impacted by this, but I'm watching my fellow humans somewhere out in the bush, my fellow Aussies, you know, struggling um, to, to survive, literally. It's, it's interesting you say that because while the bushfires were raging and all this appalling stuff happening, I realised the most difficult thing I was facing was that the ice-making machine in my freezer had broken. There you go, that's right. And I thought, this is just ridiculous. You know, I'm slightly compare, stressed about the fact that my fridge isn't working properly and there's devastation happening yeah. all around me. So, I mean, that's it. We've, you know, in so many ways, we've got it easy. And can I ask if we see friends, family members mm. responding, perhaps not in the, you know, sort of more severe spectrum of anxiety attacks, but in the sort of milder range of symptoms, not sleeping as well, maybe feeling a bit downcast, a bit hopeless, what should we do? Okay, well, it's about being sort of caring and responsive, I think, about talking to them, making sure that, you know, if you know things they like doing, engaging them with that. So whether it's, you know, <clears throat> taking them out, going to the movies, doing some sport. I mean, doing things that, uh, like, kind of get your routines back. So, and, you know, there's nothing better than fresh air and a little bit of sunshine every day to, to raise your spirits. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, Things that help relaxation, so encouraging people perhaps to join you in going to yoga or doing some meditation. Um, yeah, those sorts of things, I think, really. It's just, and acknowledging that this is okay, this is a normal reaction to a quite traumatic set of events around us. Um, if people, though, are actually sort of, you know, looking like they're more severely impacted by that, then I think... You know, try and get them to talk to somebody, either a therapist, call Lifeline or Beyond Blue, and actually talk to somebody and get some help. Go to see their GP, talk about what's going on for them. In the spirit of laughter is the best medicine, um, yeah. Radio Marinara's own Bron Burton is pulling together a, a fundraiser for uh, Gippsland Emergency Relief Fund. Oh, uh, comic, that. comic yeah. relief. And this is on the 12th of February at the Thornbury Theatre. Um, got a Tremendous lineup of laughs. Judith Lucy, ah, uh, Geraldine Hickey um, from the Breakfasters, Tripod, 
uh, Deborah Francis, aka the guilty feminist, Ooh. and Ooh. <laughs> suddenly yeah. misdiagnosis was perking up. Scared <laughs> weird little guys. And Ivan Aristogueta um, is on. That's 12th of February, uh, Thornbury Theatre, info uh, online, and proceeds to Wildlife Victoria and Gippsland Emergency Fund. Right, fantastic. Let's get along. What a wonderful! That is an incredible lineup of talent. That is a, that is completely wonderful. Prudence, Prudence I want to ask you because uh, there's sometimes this sort of sense that everybody is traumatised and devastated. But there's this concept of resilience as well. And I was mm. listening to a teacher who was asked about, oh, you know, your kids all falling apart. She said, well, you know, kids come to school and someone says, oh, what happened over your holidays? And said, oh, my house got burnt down and you know, we lost half the stock on the farm. Mm. And the other kids go, oh, yeah, is that a new hat? And then they go, yeah, I've got a new hat, and, mm. and they sort of move on. So what, what's your view about how we deal with this with people who maybe don't seem to be responding the way we expect? Look, it is, it is difficult. Um, as I say, I think really it's about trying to make sure that, if nothing else, people are connected, that you engage with them. Um, you know, and I mean, if they are really becoming sort of disconnected from what's going on in the world, then we, as I say, I think we need to look at some more important approaches in terms of therapy or whatever to help them deal with that. And we probably need to remember that this doesn't just finish because the fires may be going out because there's a little bit of rain and suddenly we're moving on and we're talking about who's going to win the tennis and that sort of stuff. For for these people, this this will be months or potentially years and it will possibly be a recurrent issue as well. Yeah, well, that's one of the things, obviously, looking to the future. It's like, oh, this is going to happen again next year. But also any form of grief, like a loss, never actually goes away. Once you've lost something... You know, you, you've lost it. And that is actually a process of working through what does my life look like minus that person, that, that environment, that business, and, and reforming your life in some way in order to, to, to keep moving forward. The other thing, which is, is this is the doctor in me coming out of it, but we know this comes from bereavement anyway, that around about 25% of people who lose a loved one, they go through bereavement, sadness and so on, but actually but around about 25% are at risk of moving into a formal major depressive mm. disorder. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think it's important to remind people that if you're going through a really, really tough time with this, there are times when people need something a bit more than a friend or a neighbour to take them for a walk. They may actually need formal treatment for yep. depression um, because, of course, all loss and so on is not depression, but there is a risk of mm-hmm. true depressive disorder when people yeah. have been through tough stuff. And if you're really, really struggling, then make sure you do talk to your doctor about what those options might mean. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Seek yeah. help or persuade someone that's close to you to do that if, that's, if you see something happening to them. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Well, it's hardly news to anyone out there that coronavirus is in the news. It's one of these things where whatever we say now will be wrong in about five minutes' time. But anyway, we're still going to say it. So, misdiagnosis, what have you got for us? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe in 10 minutes' time it'll be wrong, but we'll go for we'll go for the sort of 9, uh, 10.30 version now. Um, so, essentially, with the coronavirus, there are a couple of things that I thought might be interesting to talk about. Um, maybe just sort of bringing it back a little bit to the basics. You know, what is a virus? What's a bacteria? 
where do these things come from? Why can't we use antibiotics to treat them? Things like that. And then having a little bit of a look at some of the other infectious disease epidemics that we've had across the years. And how does this compare and how is this different? I think that's actually fascinating because when I was a baby doctor, we had this new virus. We didn't even know it was a virus. It was HTLV3 first and then mm. it became HIV. And of course, since then, we've had SARS and MERS and Zika and all sorts of and other And we acronyms. still have a version of HTLV1 in uh, Central Australia as well, which we don't hear a lot about. But that's that's another another one of the um, the HTLV viruses that's still out there. But again, you know, not so much okay. media attention. So I, I thought maybe we'd we'd start with, um, you know, sort of what is a what is the coronavirus and, and and where does it come from? And essentially, it forms uh, part of a group of viruses that uh, we know come from animals. So uh, zoonoses, the the transfer of uh, viruses from uh, from animals to humans themselves and you know when we talk about a virus itself you know I think most people feel like yeah I know what a virus is you know it's a sort of cough and cold and that kind of thing makes you a bit unwell but you know what is a virus really what, what's the definition of a virus well it's it's a it's an organism it's a small organism single-celled organism and it's one of the most abundant biological entities on the planet and the thing that differentiates viruses from things like bacteria is viruses are essentially parasites. They don't have the, the machinery, the mechanics inside their cells to do any replication on their own. So I, I remember the question being asked, is a virus a form of life? Ah, and is that, I'm not sure if that's more of a philosophical question than a scientific question. <laughs> but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because yeah. they cannot exist without other organisms. That's correct. They, they, they can't, uh, they can exist without or other organisms, but oh, they see, can't. I'm wrong already. They, they, I mean, yeah. they, they, they exist in the sense that they're still there. They don't stop existing because yeah. we don't, you know, believe in them, but they can't really do anything on their own. And this is what makes viruses so difficult to, to treat in some ways, because when we think of bacteria, which is another single-celled organism, the difference between bacteria is that they can replicate themselves. They have the machinery inside, which means they can create proteins and DNA and all sorts of bits and pieces depending on the bacteria itself, depending on what cell wall it has. And, and there are lots of specifics with different types of bacteria. But they can essentially, bacteria can self-replicate. Viruses can't. They're just these little single particles. The thing that viruses do is they need a host in order to do anything. Now, that host doesn't have to be a human. It can be an animal. And you know, as I said before, viruses are everywhere. They're, they are the most abundant biological entity on the planet. So it's not like, oh, my goodness, it's 2020. Suddenly we have viruses. We've always had viruses. Again, one of the difficult things about viruses is they don't really leave any fossil evidence. No, yes. and, and, and it's interesting what you said, which is that, that, that they can't really do anything on their own, which is rather sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's extraordinary. You think, well, they're rather feeble little things. They can't do anything on their own. They need other creatures in order to survive and replicate. How on earth have these things managed? Well, exactly. How have they managed? They, they've managed through mutation within hosts. So when I say they don't have any uh, fossil evidence, evidence what I mean is because they are just this sort of single little cell organism we can't really find any evidence of what they were back you know hundreds of thousands of years ago you know, there may have been outbreaks of these viruses in forms that we would recognize now all over the world but it's very very hard to actually trace them and figure out you know where were they and what were they doing 
the reason they can be so so deadly and, and the reason we get so worried about outbreaks like this is that when a virus finds a host, whether that's an animal host or whether that's a human host, they can inject bits of their own DNA into the host cell itself. They then borrow the mechanisms in the host cell. So in my cells or your cells, we've got all these bits and pieces that mean that we can heal cuts and bruises. We can you know, change the lining of our skin and we cough up all sorts and bits and pieces because our cells are doing all this work inside us. Viruses essentially as parasites tap into those cells. They borrow those little cellular mechanisms and then they can replicate using those cellular mechanisms. Whilst doing so, they can cause a lot of damage as well. So they are quite sort of feeble in some ways. They are parasites. They need someone else to survive. They're actually little swines. (laughs) How dare they take over my systems? Like the swine flu. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, when when we think about these things, sometimes, especially in medicine, you think, oh, this is is the basics, viruses and bacteria. But you you look at some of this stuff and it's very complicated. Um, And I guess sort of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is to talk about why you know, we don't use antibiotics for viruses. So just before we talk about that, you used that wonderful word earlier on, zoonoses. Mm. Zoo and then noses, diseases that come from animals into humans. Correct. And, and so the question to me is, why do some of these viruses suddenly appear? Why, why do we suddenly get a coronavirus that comes from an animal? Presumably it's been around for a while. Why does it suddenly wander into Wuhan and into people and then across the world? Uh, it's a very, very good question. I, I think, so I was having a look into some of this um, before our segment, and there are a lot of theories as to why some of these things are occurring now where they haven't maybe previously been occurring. And some of it is due to population density. So these viruses, uh, depending on which virus it is and depending on the route of transmission, often they require quite close contact in order for things to be transmitted. And if we look at population density, population boom, and close contact with animals as well, especially in areas like some of the provinces in China, there are sort of higher populations than we see in other parts of the world and closer contact with animals and often animals that, you know, potentially you wouldn't have super close contact with. So maybe some of the snakes and the bats and things like that. And those that's those are the situations where the viruses may be going, like the SARS virus, from the bats to the cats to the humans, because the population is so sort of it's living so densely together that instead of those little viral particles just existing in their own sphere, and you never really take much notice of them, and you know they may then eventually sort of those viruses may uh, no longer exist because they haven't found another host to replicate in. That's um, a, that sounded a bit like a Doctor Seuss poem. That's the bats to cats. <laughs> the to bats humans. to cats to humans. Yes. <laughs> Do we know where corona came from? Which animals? So we actually, I don't think, at this stage there are some theories around, are they coming, is it coming from snakes? Uh, but uh, I think at the moment, because the um, the outbreak was, I think it was the 31st of December last year, that uh, it was officially notified. I think they're still working on where exactly it came from. And even when we look at things like the SARS virus, it's still theoretically bats to cats to humans so it may take us a little while to figure out exactly where it's coming from also you know as you said this information changes every sort of 30 (laughs) minutes or so so uh, it may be that in another sort of day or two we may have identified exactly the source so you're going to go on tell us something which is absolutely from my point of view crucial to my work and my business which is the difference between the virus and viruses and bacteria and why we can treat one and not the other 
Yes. Um, and the other thing that I think can confuse people is sometimes we do give antibiotics to people when, you know, we think they may have a viral something that may tra turn, they may actually get a secondary bacterial something. And I think this can be quite confusing that you go, well, it's a virus. Why are sometimes people being given antibiotics in a hospital context anyway? And so I think if we bring it all the way back to what do antibiotics actually do, what is their role and what, you know, what do they do as a, um, as a medication themselves? Um, and there's, again, I remember studying this in medical school and thinking, oh my God, how am I ever going to understand this? It's so complicated and there are different classes that work on different bits and pieces. But if we sort of bring it all the way back and synthesize it a little bit, essentially what antibiotics do is they work on any part of um, a sort of single-celled organism that can reproduce, that can replicate or that can synthesize something. So anything that can work on growth. And there are different specific targets for different antibiotics, which is why not one antibiotic will be suitable for everything. And when we think about viruses, as I said before, they can't really do anything on their own. So the only way viruses can replicate is in a host, which means that if we were to find a drug that would target viruses, it would have to target the host itself. Now, with antibiotics, it can target the bacteria because there are differences between our cells and bacterial cells. And we can target the different areas of DNA synthesis, of protein synthesis, of cell walls in specific bacteria. Now, we can't do that with viruses because they're in our own cells. Okay, so antibiotics, no use for the viruses? Correct. What, what is any use? What is any use for the virus? Uh, well, at the moment, we don't have a vaccination for coronavirus. So there's nothing we can do right now that can stop it. Um, and I believe at the moment, the treatment for the coronavirus is still sort of... Um, well, it's, what, it's what we call supportive, isn't yeah, it? So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Pretty much with all the viruses, and, uh, apart from a few specific ones where we actually do have antiviral drugs, we mm. just have to look after people and hope they get better. Yeah, that's correct. And then treating any complications that may arise from the virus itself. And this is where sometimes you know people may be given antibiotics if they've had a viral illness, but those antibiotics aren't for the virus. Therefore, a secondary complication that may come from having the virus. So, um, I mean, in, in, in the past when we've had things like bird flu and that sort of stuff, I mean, people have gone out, we, they've tried various antiviral drugs. I mean, they were made available to people. Mm. You could buy them in pharmacies. So why don't those drugs work against coronavirus? Do you know? <laughs> there was a there was a, a little look of recognition passing between the two doctors on the panel going i have no idea <laughs> um, I, I actually don't know the answer to why some of the viruses respond to particular well no some of the, the anti-flu drugs um and this is tamiflu was the best known brand which the government stockpiled tens of millions of doses of and and 9.999 of those 10 million were never used mm. uh, it was it was just an extraordinary public health measure uh, this is when flu epidemics were going mm. around uh, and then they had to ask the company to extend the use by date so they didn't have to go and buy any more the, the reality is when you look at the research on those anti-flu drugs they're not that great anyway right. um so some antivirals work for some viruses. The anti-flu one's not great. There's some for the herpes group of viruses, which actually work quite well. Uh, why it's so difficult to find drugs which, which work well for things like coronavirus are beyond my skill set, I'm afraid. 
Likewise. Yeah. Just wondering. <laughs> no, it's no, no good, it's a very fair so it's question. probably no good taking the Tammy flu if you've still got some. No, no, probably not for the coronavirus. But it's a, but it's a, but what interests me also is we, these things come. So we have these huge uh, bits of publicity, whether it's about Ebola or Zika or bird flu or SARS and MERS, and it just seems one acronym after another. Mm. Currently, we're all getting hot under the collar about coronavirus, and then at some point it fizzles out. So why does that happen? Mm, I think, look, again, with something like that, when we look at the history of some of these sort of mass viral, um, sort of health health scares and outbreaks, uh, what we find is that um, our health response to it now is in some ways so geared for a large response on the off chance that these viruses are you know, have a much higher mortality and fatality rate than maybe they are presenting. So I think it's because whenever we we meet a a new virus like this, we go, oh, is this going to be the big one that, you know, wipes out X number of people? And if we're lucky, it doesn't. However, if we're unlucky and these these viruses, you know, they can kill a lot more people, they can affect a lot more people, we want to be prepared for these outbreaks to try and stop it. So the reason that this was actually detected in the first place is after the SARS epidemic of 2003-2004, there was a mass surveillance campaign that was launched by the WHO. And this surveillance campaign was looking at notifying um, areas with you know, increased numbers of pneumonia with unknown cause, things like that, similar to the SARS virus itself. So that when something like this happened, instead of in you know, two or three months' time, when maybe more people had died from it, you go, oh, what's this? What's going on here? We can look at it when there are fewer cases. I think it was only 60 cases in the province itself that were identified in December last year, which caused the public health campaign to begin around this area area. Now, if it turns out that um, that the coronavirus itself is less lethal than we thought, is less dangerous than we thought, that's fine. If it turns out it's more lethal than we thought, that's a really big problem. So we have a, in some ways, we have a sort of public health response that's geared towards uh, reducing and, and mitigating any risk or any damage with this. But what, what's the risk here of overreacting? So we, t- mm. today the government have announced a complete ban of all flights from China to Australia, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is an Huge. extraordinary yeah. And response. also against WHO policy currently. So, so we've, got a, we've got a new virus which has mm. infected thousands of people worldwide but only killed a handful. We have a virus which comes every year which kills tens of thousands of people worldwide. It's called the flu. Mm. We don't suddenly stop people travelling because of a virus that we know will kill tens of thousands of people. Why has the government banned all flights from China to Australia for this virus? If, Doctor, I, knew the, if I knew the answer to that, maybe I wouldn't be in the studio, maybe I'd be... Um, uh, having meetings with the sort of public health commission. But I, I think that it, it is worth pointing out that these responses in some ways, if you think about a response to an outbreak like this as uh, two sides of a scale, on one side you've got the risks if this is a very lethal virus that ends up killing a lot of people, that ends up uh, being a huge public health health risk. And on the other side you have the financial, the political and the economic, uh, sorry, that's economic twice, uh, reasons why we're having these kind of responses to it. Now, Population banning a population from traveling is a very, very, it seems like an intuitively correct thing to do because you go, oh, yeah, we'll stop the virus coming in. We'll stop people spreading the virus. The reality is you direct a lot of funds to border security, a lot of funds to turning flights back, and you take funds away from the public health response on the ground itself. It also can create mass hysteria around an issue. 
And it's not like people aren't going to, you know, potentially just lie on border security forms. So with the travel ban itself that's been announced, I think, you know, within the last couple of hours, it's if you have been in China in the last 14 days, because the current understanding of the incubation period for coronavirus is anywhere between 12 to 14 days. So they're saying if you've been, you know, 14 days ago, you're probably fine, you can come in. If you've been there within 14 days, you you cannot come in. Now, what's to stop people going via another airport and lying? I don't I don't know. You know, there may be other uh, things that are in place. But if that is the case, and then we have people entering the country um, who have potentially lied on border security forms, how are we supposed to track the spread of this illness? And if we have people entering with incorrect information, it can essentially it can really hinder the public health response to figuring out where are these diseases coming from, in what quantities, um, and how do we actually safely track and stop this? Okay, Scott Morrison, I hope you're listening to this diagnosis <laughs> here for some useful advice, and it's accurate now, and probably in two hours' time it'll be completely wrong because everything will have changed yet again. <laughs> Coronavirus. Wow, what a vexing question that one is. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. My attention was drawn by the Medical Journal of Australia, which is always my bedtime reading, of course, because um, there, there was an article about screening for cancer, which is something which we do all the time in primary care, and it was saying perhaps we're overdoing it. And I thought, ooh, uh, what are we talking about here? Um, and uh, the phrase that was at the start of um, a, a discussion in this article said, an obsession with early detection has created a public health crisis of almost 30,000 cancers overdiagnosed in Australia each year, says one expert. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big statement, 30,000 cancers overdiagnosed every year. So when we had a look at this, they, they, they were talking about five particular cancers, um, and the three which I'm not really going to focus on because I think they're a, a different question, really, are melanoma, thyroid, and kidney. But the two that they were really talking about were breast and prostate. Um, and the reason I'm interested in those is, is because they're, they're both cancers for which we talk about screening. Breast, obviously, we have a formal screening program through mammography. Uh, and prostate, prostate cancer, we have a, a non-formal but um, a, a screening program sort of in place. Uh, and I say sort of because uh, there's no formal program. There's just advice to doctors about what we should do about prostate cancer screening. And in both of these areas, breast and prostate, uh, there's a question about whether at times we do more harm than good. So I'm looking at my panel thinking when I throw out that slightly controversial statement. Absolutely. Look, I think, you know, we, we've seen, take mammography as a really good example. And, and I think we've seen the number of diagnoses of breast cancers of various sorts you know, rise over the years. And mammography has become, you know, increasingly more what, sensitive in terms of the imaging and things. And so there are, I think, pretty clearly um, diagnoses of very early stage pathologies in breast tissue which are then treated either with surgery or and then possibly radiotherapy and so on which are all quite aggressive treatments and one has to sort of try to understand well what was the likely outcome of some of those very early kind of you know pathologies that we might see the, the ductal carcinoma in situ things which are very kind of localized sometimes and um, you know is, is this actually a lethal disease mm. state 
Yeah, it, it, and it's it, it's a very very vexed question. This, and of course, it becomes political as well as medical because it's uh, and particularly for an old bloke to be talking about um, whether or not there's a uh, a compromise to breast cancer screening um, is potentially a vexed question. But if you look at raw data, the National Health Service say that overall. Uh, for every one woman who has a life saved from the mammographic screening program, three women are diagnosed with a cancer that would never have become life-threatening. And I think that's a really important figure. I mean, it's, of course, it's crucial to save lives. It's appalling cancer that is so common. And a lot of women would say, well, I'm, I'm prepared to go through that chance. I'm prepared to have my or someone else's life saved, even if it does mean some people have to go through unnecessary treatment. But it's quite a figure, isn't it? For every life saved, three women will have treatment for cancers that would never have killed them. It's like a kind of over-treatment, really, isn't it? Like we yeah. rush in, and I think partly perhaps because there's, you know, cancer is still the big C. It, it, it strikes fear into many. So the idea, if you get a cancer diagnosis, is you've got to have it treated. So I, treated. I was talking to a, a, a youngish woman, so she was in her late 40s, and she'd had some surgery on her breast for completely incidental reasons. They found a little bit of uh, cancer in the, in the lobes, for instance, said that this is a very vexed question and it has torn her apart for two months since then she's been in a state of abject terror because she's been told she's got some cancer in her breast and the advice is we may not have to treat this it may not matter and the advice has also been maybe you need to have both your breasts taken off irrevocable mm -hmm. surgery for a young woman it's, a, it's about risk and, and risk is about trying to predict the future and actually we're not that good at doing that so we go through the same return more my territory the older bloke um so prostate cancer screening has been a been a vexed mm -hmm. issue in the profession for a very long time um and uh, men come in and say well i want to have my prostate checked doc and what we're told is we're supposed to say to them, oh, well, there's some risks and there's some benefits and we're supposed to give them all the figures and let them make up their mind. And the number of blokes who look at me and say, I have no idea what you're talking about, Doc. If you don't know what to do, how am I supposed to make up my mind? Yeah, look, and I mean, again, it comes down to we've got tests that, you know, like there's a blood test, isn't there, PSA? Um, and again, we seem, as I think, as, as patients particularly, to have immense faith in these uh, tests. You know, if it's a high level, it means I've got a cancer, it means, and if I've got cancer, it means I need to have it treated. Whereas actually, again, you know, the, the, these are highly variable, they're not particularly accurate, and the risks of a lot of these tests is anyway to get more false positives. You know, if you get a false, you know, negative, like you don't even know you've got the cancer, but you get these positive results, and it's then, well, what do you do about it? And we know that prostate cancer takes a very long time in many cases to develop. And I'm going to do a perfect thing for radio here, which is show a piece of paper. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's in colour, by it's the way. You're really showing your age yes. now. No, no, I, I did pretty well. Hold I, it up to the microphone. <laughs> hold up. But, but the reason I've got this is because it's a beautiful illustration that's used to demonstrate the risks and benefits of prostate cancer screening. It says if you screen a thousand blokes uh, and you compare it to people who are not screened, you will probably save one life per thousand from prostate cancer. Mm. Uh, and then there's a huge number of coloured bits and pieces which are all the harms that will come to the people who are found to have indolent cancers that probably yeah. wouldn't have mattered yeah. and are treated anyway. 
So can I ask, Dr Nick, so you're, you're talking about things, you're using terms indolent cancer, a little bit of cancer, a bit bigger bit of cancer, some cancer that won't matter, some cancer that will matter. I think this is one of the really complex areas when it comes to detection and comes to screening. You know, what does it mean to have a little bit of cancer, an indolent cancer versus a cancer that may be really serious? And, and that is such a great question because this word, is, as you correctly said, Prudence, the, the C word, cancer, you, you can't use that word and then expect someone to listen to or all to these other... Or to hear the next thing you say. Because <laughs> all they've heard is the word cancer. Uh, and there's actually, there's actually been a move to try and, and rename some of these forms of what we in the medical profession called indolent cancer. I would sometimes refer to my children as being indolent. It means lying around, not doing enough, not helping in the house. <laughs> Cancers can be a bit like that. So they can sit around in the body and they don't do much and they're not they're a bit of a pain to have there, but they don't actually get in the way very much. So, so you, what is a cancer? So, oh, for goodness sake, this diagnosis, <laughs> I'm going to throw that question straight back. You would have been taught, what is a cancer? How do you define a cancer? Go. Well, look, I'm probably going to have to re-Google the definition of it. I feel like at the moment my role sort of centres more around paperwork than it does around (laughs) actual medicine. Um, But my understanding of cancers are uh, normal cells within the body that have mutated to do things that they shouldn't do. And the thing that is the most dangerous about cancers is when they spread to different areas of the body and they can take over. And the problem with cancers often is you know, sometimes it can be what they secrete. They can make little hormones and things. And sometimes it can just be the space that they take up, which pushes on other structures and can cause lots of lots of um, you know, things like if you have a cancer in the brain, it can push on other things and, and stop your brain functioning normally. But the important thing, and that's a beautiful and eloquent explanation of what a cancer is. Thank God I didn't have time to answer that question. <laughs> um, but the important thing is they're not all the same. Exactly. So we have some nasty, aggressive cancers that grow very, very quickly. Some of the forms of brain cancer, for instance. We have others which grow much more slowly. And so there are skin cancers, forms of melanoma, which are really very slow growing and which quite possibly would never cause anyone real harm. That's right. But also, um, you know, and, and part of our response to that is to look for these so-called screening programs. So the, the belief that if you detect a cancer early, you have a greater success of treating it, and that there is ways that you can screen otherwise healthy populations. So, you know, we have mammograms, uh, we have the sort of cervical smear programs, and we now have the faecal occult blood test, which we're trying out for. But it's applied to particular populations. Um, And probably so far out of those, though, I mean, it's like, how successful are they? I think we know that cervical cancer screening is actually effective in saving lives. Mm. I think when you look at all the data around mammography, it's a bit it's a bit iffy actually as to how good it is in terms of damage versus lives saved. Doctor, can I ask a Joe Public question here? What does uh, a successful screening program mm. mean? Like, is successful screening program one that detects cancer at a particular rate, or is successful screening a program that detects cancer and prevents um, otherwise uh, a, a definite death. I think I actually answered a question very similar to that in my exam paper in 1979. Oh, <laughs> I'm just catching up. And, and again, misdiagnosis may be more up to date than I am, but there are various criteria for screening to be successful. And we have to know the natural history of a disease. We have to know that intervention can be effective. We have to have a way of identifying that disease accurately in the early stages. And then we have to have the mechanisms in place to provide the intervention that we know is effective. 
and to add some extra bits and pieces onto that, uh, we also have to have the screening test be acceptable to the population who is being screened. So, you know, for example, if we can't just sort of go around doing massive invasive procedures on people to screen them. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the earliest detection. It just has to be detection at a point where intervention would be helpful. And thank you for that, because it's a perfect example. Mammographic screening, not not the most pleasant thing for a woman to have done. This is to go and have a breast squeeze between two cold plates of metal. Um, but the government poo test, the faecal lock blood test, you think, oh, for goodness sake, get over it. But only about 38 to 40 percent of people actually do it, because the idea of putting a swizzle stick in their poo is too off-putting for them. Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the faecal lock blood test, because that's actually a very effective screening. Program. Yeah, yeah, we know that it works. Um, I, I don't want to knock mammography. It's the best that we've got. I mean, breast cancer is this hideous common disease, and at the moment we'd have no better program than mammography. But I guess the point I'm trying to consider here, which is what this paper is about, is that there are two sides to every coin. Um, and it's not simply... People sometimes come in and say, oh, Doc, I'm 50, I want to have a whole body scan mm. to look for everything. And I just I roll my eyes because I know what's going to happen, if we, which I don't do it, by the way, but I've had people who've done this, and they get, oh, there's a little bit of something on your left kidney or there might be something on your brain stem. Um, so we find things that we Incidental don't... Incidentalomas. That's what they're beautifully called, these <laughs> lumps and bumps that we weren't looking for in the first place, called incidentalomas. So let's remind people out there, yes, cervical screening, fantastic. Prostate cancer screening, go and talk to your doctor. Mm, not great. Breast cancer screening, well worth for doing, sure, sure. Um, but it's not without its problem. And bowel cancer screening, for goodness sake, get off the toilet, get your swizzle sticks and send it in. <laughs> let's get our rate up over 50%. That's all we've got time for here on Radio Thin Therapy. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand, and you can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.